Welcome to another episode of For Posterity. I am your host, the Rhythm Writer, and I'm happy that you are here tuning in. And hopefully you're tuning in on the day that this episode launches. Now, that would be September 7th, 2022. I'm saying the date, I suppose, for posterity. Today, I'm speaking with the acclaimed poet, writer, educator, feminist, mother, and cultural activist, Opal Palmer Adissa. She joins me for posterity to talk about perspective and to talk about voice. We begin with a kind of honoring of Opal's inspirations. So find your bottle of white rum and pour out a sip for all those who have gone on. For my grandmother's who were storytellers, for Opal's aunties and her mother, pour out some rum for the memories of home. Opal, she recognizes that African-American word artists like Jean Toomer or Langston Hughes or Gwendolyn Brooks have inspired her. So let's pour some out for their works, their words. Pour some out for Jamaican poet Claude McKay and the mother of Jamaican culture, the Honorable Louise Bennett Coverly. I released this episode today because it's Louise Bennett Coverly's birthday. She would have been 103 today. We affectionately call her Miss Lou here in Jamaica, and she left an indelible mark on Professor Opal Palmer Adissa. Indeed, Miss Lou inspired many Jamaicans, from the rural country parts to downtown Kingston and all the way into uptown St. Andrew and all across Jamaica's diaspora. So we give thanks for her life. The Honorable Louise Bennett Coverly is who we as a Jamaican nation recognize as the confident embodiment of Jamaica's linguistic culture. Her decades of stage performances, television and radio recordings, writings, and poems all celebrate the voice of a people who wanted colonial independence. Whether read in the local newspaper during the 1940s or read in her publications today, her stories, characters, and her poems' personas speak with the voice of a people who believe that they have a unique cultural identity of which to be proud. She emboldened us. Yes, whether orally, scribally, or musically, Miss Lou used her real voice and the fictional voices she created to uplift the Jamaican masses to speak Jamaican language with confidence. Of course, I do cry, oh, what a sin thing to find out that in a few time now, enough people can't find proper, proper work because them not chat Hinglan English. And, yeah, I'm also upset to say that school picnic today, can't pass class if them chat in the same voice that Miss Lou used to grace hallowed Jamaican, British, and Canadian stages. What I'm saying is that while we celebrate Miss Lou's performance work, we must also continue to do her legacy proud. The same Jamaican voice that opened national and international doors for Miss Lou for more than half of the 20th century shouldn't close doors for Jamaicans seeking educational and employment opportunities today. We must not forget, Miss Lou uplifted us. She gave all of we the confidence to speak Jamaican language 
publicly. Professor Emeritus Mervyn Morris of my department at the University of the West Indies, Mona, was one of the first to lift up Louise Bennett's poetry as work that, while humorous and full of patois words and Jamaican proverbs, it was nevertheless to be taken seriously and studied seriously for its capacity to capture the sentiment of a people who were too often dismissed or ignored in the public arena. And Carolyn Cooper, also Professor Emerita of my Department of Literatures in English, also provided us with critical scholarship and public discourse that evidences why we must see our Jamaican language as real and respectable, and that we must recognize Miss Lou critically as the Kani Jama Oman that she is. So as I drift down this Miss Lou road on her 103rd birthday, I'd like to note that we must continue to take Miss Lou's work seriously as a decolonial voice of poetry, prose, and stage performance. Hers is a heroic voice that has helped us to loose our tongues, fiwitong proudly. Miss Lou has inspired my guest in more ways than I can count. Indeed, I can hardly keep up. I can hardly keep count of all the works that Opal Palmer Adissa has published that may never have been written or voiced or even dreamed up if Miss Lou hadn't blazed that trail. If I'm correct, Opal has some 20 publications to her name. This includes essay collections, novels, short story collections, poetry collections, and edited volumes. The most recent is the 100 Voices for Miss Lou edited collection published by the UE Press in 2021. I'm honored to have a contribution in that volume, a piece I co-authored with editor, educator, dramaturge, and also now a fellow podcaster, L.A. Wanless. So now as I step away from the proverbial podium to make way for this conversation with Opal, let me make one more point of connection. A connection, of course, between Opal and Miss Lou. It's by way of a single sentence written by Mervyn Morris in his 2014 book-length study of Miss Lou titled Miss Lou, Louise Bennett and Jamaican Culture. Now, after offering the traditional biographical notes about Louise Bennett, you know, her upbringing, her schooling, etc., Mervyn Morris added that, and I'll quote here, menstrual problems which caused Louise Bennett excruciating pain often obliged her to miss class and sometimes need injections of morphine, end quote. Now, it's not clear to me how many years Miss Lou endured this monthly debilitation. Nor do I know how this menstrual pain impacted her work or her relationships. What I know is that this image of a tortured Miss Lou, buckled in pain, is not the Miss Lou that we have ever recalled or imagined. Yes, she was boisterous, laughter, stunning stage presence. But she, like many of us, masked so much more. The old adage, tekintit kibahat bun, applies all too well, eh? Well, in honor of the mother of Jamaican culture who inspired my guest for this episode, I will close with a reading of one of Opal Palmer Adissa's poems from her 2013 collection, Four-Headed Woman. This poem is titled Menstrual Hut. I do hope that Miss Lou 
wherever you are, you hear this one. Menstrual Hut by Opal Palmer Adissa. Women go to the Halepea in Hawaii, nourish their power, restore balance. Jaman, no Hawaiian woman cook food during that time. Stories whispered, no eat stew peas from any woman, you can never tell. It will bind, cast a spell, tie you tar forever. Simbu people of Papua New Guinea, among Indonesians, West Africans, almost everywhere, sister to sister, relief from work, break from men, removed from the community they told stories, guarded their solitude, grew powerful, influenced the men using their blood, real, sometimes staged, to clear a space for feminine positioning. Most times, I'm an even-tempered, congenial person. Some even say I'm gregarious, but not today. No private room or isolated contentment. Give me shared space where women to women gather, laugh at man's folly and squash his fear. A menstrual hut where women can just be in charge of nature energy. I want to say thank you so much to Opal Palmer Adissa for writing this poem. I want to say give thanks for the life that was, the life that is Miss Lou. Give thanks. And maybe in the words of Miss Lou, I say, ay, ay, ay. Here we go with another episode of For Posterity. The conversation begins now. a boy child was Adissa and it was because that name was so powerful in Yoruba it's they the one who speaks with clarity Uh and we thought if we had a boy child it would be so important for that black boy to speak clearly in the world and it was a name that we picked out and so I mean it just endeared me of course I was aware of the name because of you um, because it is a name that you carry, um, but it even it endeared me to you even more. And so I'm so happy to be talking with you now. And I'm so glad that I can call you my, my friend. Thank you. And I feel the same way. And I just want to back up a little to say that before I had children, I wanted a name, an African name. I didn't want them mm. to have a European name. And so I was uh, a part of the Yorubas uh, Santeria uh, mm. religion and community uh, in the Bay Area where I had gone to study to get my PhD and a priest, I said, I was looking for a name and a priest says, I think this is the name for you. And so I took that wow. name. So my children all have that as a last name, although it's a hyphenated last name, they have Adisa comes first. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Names matter. I agree. Oh my goodness. So, so, you know, as I, as I kind of get into this conversation with you, um, and since we've already started with names and what names mean, I was doing some reading and I realized, um, that three of the writers that had a big influence on the works that you've come to do, um, are three writers that I care a lot about as well. And so I see that Langston Hughes, Mm -hmm. Gwendolyn Brooks, and Jean Toomer are in your top five, certainly in yes, your top three, yes, perhaps. Yes, definitely, definitely. And, and curiously, when I think about those three writers, three African-American writers, they all focus greatly on interiority. Mm-hmm. 
And the works that they write really explore the internal matter, that the matter that is so hard to penetrate, um, that, but needs and is worthy of penetration. It, it needs and is worthy of attention and care. And Ooh. they were doing it at a time long before, you know, hashtag self-love and hashtag take care of yourself and hashtag black people have feelings too. They Ooh. were doing it. And, and I thought that was very interesting. And, and so I'm wondering if you can talk a bit about how, how these writers came to impact you. What yeah. was it that you saw in their work? Well, I have to say Jean Tumor was first. And because when I went to the USA, at 16 and a half to finish a last year of high school and do my undergrad. Then you could browse the shelves. And I was browsing the shelves for black writers and I saw Kane. And I grew up at Kane Manor's Escape on where Kane was my life. You know, my father mm. was a chemist and he turned Kane into rum. So I picked up that book just from the title. And then when I opened the pages and started to read it, I couldn't put it down. And it is still for me, one of the most pro uh, provocative, interesting, deeply intertwined interior book that I've read. And similarly, that led me to Gwendolyn Brooks. Um, and I was just moved by her work um, and the bean eaters and her getting into the headspace and the interior space of these characters that she was writing about. Um, so, you know, that's how that journey began, one out of a quest to know Black writers, because even though I grew up in Jamaica in a Black society, in school at Wilmers, I was never introduced to a Black writer. Mm. And so going to America and having an African-American teacher in literature and her knowing my interest in poetry and literature that was what guided me not only to those three African-American writers, but guided me to Claude McKay, mm -hmm. who is one of the writers whose work I looked at when I was doing my master's degree in California. And it led me to look at a book that my mother had given me in, 70, in the late 70s when I was still a teenager. Um, I don't even know if I was a teenager. Well, I was still a teenager. And Louise Bennett. And okay. I had... You remember hearing and listening to Louise Bennett on the radio with my mother and seeing her and Mars Rani in pantomime, but had never really studied her work as poetry. So that is the journey and why I love those five writers, because they write about real people and the lives that are important to me. And it's not from some outer grand perspective but from the very much the ordinary interior perspective of these, of our people, of my people, whether yes. they're Jamaicans or African-Americans are Africans, yeah. Right, we're all in this diaspora together, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting to think about how the African-American stories that you were engaging with were in print and you were dealing with them at the same time as having memories of vivid memories of the orality uh, coming out of Jamaica. As you mentioned, the pantomime and you mentioned the radio programs, you mentioned what what was audible, right? These are stories that were being told out of mouth and into ear. And all of these stories were swirling in your head and helping to create the voice that you would eventually use in your own work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. 
And because, you know, Jamaica was then, and I, and I think it still is, very much an oral society and an oral culture. You know, one of the strong images for me is of my great-grand-aunt and my, pater- my maternal grandfather telling stories. Story, storytelling was an important part of my childhood, not only from adults telling us stories, but as children, we told each other stories. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have these games on the phones. We hardly had t- TV. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I remember I was, what, six or whatever when Jamaica got TV in mm. 1962, and it was, you know, a limited time. So what we had was orality. We told each other stories, guess me this riddle and perhaps not, a Nancy story, uh, big boy stories, and other stories that we made up that were fired from our imagination. And we listened to stories on the radio. Um, so the orality of our, of our culture was very much uh, strong and dominant. And I still think with all of these other gadgets that we have, that our story, our, our, we communicate largely and primarily through the orality, through the auditory. And that's why radio is still an important feature of the Jamaican society and people call in and listen in. For sure. And, and as I think about something very contemporary, thinking about Beverly Manley Uncensored, the documentary mm-hmm. in four parts that's been on, on YouTube through Ad Intelligent, um, TV, their YouTube channel. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've had a chance to take any of it in, but what I think is most alluring about it, what I think is grabbing people's attention more than anything, is the storytelling that Beverly Manley is telling stories. And we are gathered around in this intimate setting. If she's positioned at her dining table or she's propped up on her bed or in her you feel like you've been welcomed into the to the parlor and she's telling you stories and we want to hear the stories. And I love it. And, you know, I've always admired Beverly Manley and I have to put it out there that I am hoping that I could write a biography for her for young children. Mm. Um, that for me, she is one of the important sheroes of Jamaica because of her activism work, the fact that she was the first dark-skinned black woman who was the first lady of Jamaica because of how she carried herself through that entire reign because she's a feminist and a liberator you know and talk about sex and activism and all of these things that make us as human beings as as women um, important without fear or without censorship and I was very happy to hear what she says that now she can do it because the two husbands to whom she was um, entangled in a sense, have are passed, so she no longer, not that she no longer, so she feels that she can come out and say who she is. And it is a really, really marvelous series. And I have been enjoying seeing and watching her talk about her journey and share and disclose in the way that she has been sharing and disclosing. And I think it's a very important moment for all of us as women who are writers and activists um, who feel because of society and who we're affiliated with that constrained and self-censored uh, in what we say and how we say who and what our lives have been and still are. Certainly. If, if not now, then when, right? If we're not exactly. going to speak now, then when? 
Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting to hear you reflect on Beverly Manley and her significance, because in so many ways, there are parallels with who you are as a feminist and someone who speaks as a liberator and is here to, to, to deliver women in particular, young girls in particular, into a sense of, of authority and ownership over themselves. And I'm thinking about how your writing has has centered women since the 1980s, women of all ages too, right? Mm-hmm. As I think about your entry, your your submission in pre. Mm-hmm. Um, so thinking about women of all ages and how, you know, we all deserve joy and love and pleasure and respect, you know, respect as number one. So, yeah. you know, some, some may argue that writers, women writers who center on women do so because they're writing about what they know. But I, I, I sense with you that it's not simply about writing what you know as a woman, but writing in a political way, writing for the, the, the sake of building cultural fire and you use words to light that fire. And so I've appreciated all of the words that you've written. And I, I think about some of the pieces that you've done and, and the poem that you have that's been commissioned for the Harder They Come 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. That's a piece that is not looking at women. Right. It's not looking at women, but it's looking at society, which is why I say that you are lighting a cultural fire. Thinking about what is it? Mm. Right. So let me just back up for a minute and to to thank you for that positioning of my work. From my very first collection, Big Face and Other Guava Stories, that came out in 1985 and was reviewed very favorably by the New York Times. I was speaking about women and I was very conscious. At 17, I declared myself a feminist before knowing all what feminism entailed. Can you tell me what happened at 17 that that pushed you to say that? It was a specific thing. So here's the story. When I was growing up, I was always called a tomboy because I wanted to do what in at that time was considered boy things. I didn't want to stay inside and play with my dolls and, you know, learn about the house. I wanted to go outside with the boys and run and play cowboy and teeth and swim naked in the canal and all of those things I did to the consternation of my mother, my poor mother, <laughs> bless her heart. And then, you know, I was supposed to go to Girl Scout and I lied and I went to soccer games and all kinds of stuff (laughs) that at that time I wasn't supposed to do. And because I was raised by a mother who was middle class or had ascended to middle class through education and job and who wanted to raise me to be a nice young lady. And that meant that I was going to get married and have children and all of those kinds of stuff. Well, I was never appealed to that. I never wanted to be a nice lady because it felt to me that nice ladies sat and with their ankles crossed. And that did not appeal to me at all. Mm-hmm. And the women I wrote about in my first collection are working class women, women who were modeled after some of the, uh, the helpers who worked with us, some of the women I saw on the sugar escape. Because to me, they were strong and fierce and they were, and they were also subjugated in some times, but they were, they were a different type of a woman. Um, the market woman has always been my first image of feminism because to me, these were women who sat in the market, who had their yes. own money, who grow their own food. A lot of them who grow their own food, like my great grand aunt, Maisie. Um, you know, so for me, they were feminists. You know, and and speaking to many of them and looking at the lives of many of them and researching many of them, 
they had more than one man. In fact, in my very anthologized poem, Market Woman, they say, and it's three man made it have, and them no good as a, no good as them is for them father my children, right? Mm -hmm. So I was always interested in women's voices. But it's not been exclusively women's voices. It's been primarily women's voices in my collection that came out in 2006 or 2007 until Judgment Comes. It focused on seven males, male voices. And this new collection that I'm working on is featuring equally the male and the female voice. Um, so, yes, Ivan, you know, The Harder They Come has and still does have a profound impact on me like it has on many Jamaicans and many people all over the world. Because mm -hmm. again, Hensel, who was not from the black underclass and who was not from the rural, well, he lived, he's from the rural area, really gave us a glimpse of what it meant to be black and poor in Jamaica. And that mm -hmm. hasn't changed much, unfortunately. The black man who is poor, who lives in the inner city or the rural area, is still neglected, is still put down, is still discarded, not only by brown skin or white people, but also by us, um, by many of us who are in many ways just like that person or those persons out of because of color and common heritage, but are discarded because we have achieved education or middle class status or whatever you know we think we achieve. So mm -hmm. Ivan for me was a hero. And then in re-looking at Ivan, I thought, well, is, is he really a hero? Is he really or is he an anti-hero, which is what the poem speaks about. Right. Because I'm thinking of how Ivan was portrayed. And I've been trying to get in touch with Mike Thelwell, who wrote the book. You know, but I did speak to Jimmy Cliff. I did interview Jimmy Cliff very recently about that film and the rest of his life, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and his take on the character Ivan. So that, yes, Ivan provided for us this hero. But when we begin to deconstruct and peel the onions, you know, the layers away from Ivan, I think we have to look at him in a different way. And that's one of the ways I looked at him. Now, I have since written another poem oh. from, from the perspective of Ivan, because I was thinking, what if, if Ivan, the Ivan that I would want, were to write this movie, would he portray himself differently? Interesting. Yeah. Would you be able to share that with me? Yeah, I can I can um, share that with you. Let me just pull it up. So, you know, I think we have to look at who is writing our stories and from what perspective. Right. And, um, and it's not that the perspective is necessarily wrong. It's that it is different. And mm. if we were to tell our stories, and I think what happens to us, not just as Jamaicans, but as Black people, we tend to unconsciously buy in so the ways in which we have been portrayed and write from that lens. So mm. you know how in the music we say, pull it back and come again? This yes. second poem, which is not a part of that collection and which I think should have been, um, is called Pull It Back and Come Again, Ivan. That's right, you will hear it here first. Opal Palma Adissa is going to recite the poem, Pull It Back 
and come again, Ivan. Sound of Them think country bunking fool, fool. But me never was nobody's fool. Great grandson of the big man Garvey, a visionary. Me granny teach me a thing or two before she shut she eye and fly back home. Not to the sky and angels, but to Kemet and her people. Me knew the songs that grew in me heart is healing balms them. To lift a man's head and restore a woman's dignity. To set children upon the right path, so me set me intention. True, me did forget sometimes, tempted by the flash of the here and now, but me never stumbled too far. Righteousness is the man who walks steadfast in his own shoe. We have to have hope. We have to believe we will come through, cross the river, and get home safe. A mistake by the words. You can get it if you really try. A barefoot man will walk ten miles with the promise of a pair of shoes at the end. You can get it if you really try. If you not try, you salt. That's the plain and simple truth. But you must try, try and try, try and try. You will succeed at last. It's five times me say try, cause success not easy. You have to try with all your heart. You have to believe while you're trying. And even when failure look like it fall down upon you and pin you down, you have to keep trying. Never give up. You have to try even when everybody around you say you're stupid. You have to try even when suffocation and yam your skin and soul. You have to try till you succeed at last. That. That's I man last word. Wow. <laughs> wow. Now that is a, that is a poem. Oh my goodness. I mean all I'm thinking about I mean I'm seeing the entire film come through in in that minute and a half or you know 2 minutes that you read and really Ivan's biggest crime the real crime that he commits is that he believed in himself and he of all people shouldn't have. He believed in himself, and then he had the audacity to infect Elsa with a belief in herself. Yes, and you know what? Since being asked to write, I haven't had the time, but I am going to be re-looking at this movie in greater detail and Mm. writing because I wanted to write something about Elsa. I wanted to write about her life, not only with the preacher, but with Ivan and, you know, the Rasta. And why she gave him in, right. you know, why she gave him up and, and that her giving him up was not out of any meanness, but to save no. the rest of the community. At least that is my belief. I right? think it was to save the children. It was to save the children because he didn't know how they were starving and the powers that be conspired, conspired with their mm-hmm. might and power to squeeze mm-hmm. us, to give up. They were ready to let the whole community die, let the whole community suffer. And she wasn't. She said, if one can fall so that some can eat, then that's going to have to be a better thing because she couldn't, she couldn't let them all starve. Exactly. So So she's a real heroine. And for sure, you know, other people who contributed to this amazing uh, catalog, uh, I can't remember whose poem it was that actually looked at her voice, but hers is a voice that I want to amplify more. Um, Certainly. Partly because of my feminist stance, but because her voice also 
needs that amplification. So I know it's a project that I'm going to be pursuing, but uh, so many other things are um, are at, on the table right now that I have had to push this aside. Absolutely. But I'm glad that you will be doing that because I'm glad that you'll be doing this work with The Heart If They Come. Um, and, and big up to Justine Henzel for inviting so many poets to do beautiful work um, of teasing out this film 50 years later. Um, you certainly see a feminist thread running through so many of the poems. You realize that people are, are awake in a way that they weren't in 1972 and not even in 1982, 92 even. Yeah. Um, but there's an awareness now that we can't can't put back in in the closet we can't anymore right. um and what for but, me I, again i also want to big up uh justine for that vision and for kwame does who um oh, curated the exhibition um but what yeah i think what you're saying is so important that some of the contributors weren't even born when the film was made right and it's good to for us to look at this movie this classical movie um, through the lens of writers and artists. So I, it's a mm. brilliant project. It's certainly. a brilliant project. And I certainly very much am happy and grateful to be a part of it and to witness and to see and to hear the different poems and the different angles and visual uh, perspective that people brought to it. It has really expanded it and also speaks of its longevity and its timelessness. For sure. We think about how much culture impacts art and breeds art, but art begets more art, right? The way exactly. that we're feeding each other with more of the same of, of art. Um, but you said you have a lot on the table, so you're going to have to kind of figure out how you can balance some of these projects. What is it that's occupying your time right now? <laughs> Miss Lou. Um, oh. Miss Lou, um, I'm working to implement the inaugural Louis Bennett Festival. And that came about because I was invited to participate in festivals. You know, there's been a festival for Miss Lou that has been going on in Florida for the 14th. I think this was the 14th year when I was invited. They were doing oh the 14th celebration. And then there are other festivals in uh, Canada and other places. And I thought, Oh my God, Miss Lou is from here. Why don't we have a festival for her, especially now when she's being positioned to be a national heroine or hero? I don't want, you know, that kind of stuff. And right. because I loved Miss Lou, uh, because she gave me voice, she gave me permission. My poem, Market Woman, would not have been written in the Jamaican nation language if Miss Lou hadn't given me permission. And by that, I mean by her own demonstrative, steadfast, insistent on using the Jamaican nation language and saying to us and to everyone else, it is a legitimate, viable language that translates and eloquently describes who we are and the emotional range of our being. So um, having just completed the anthology that you were very much a part of thank you mm -hmm. having just uh in just before the pandemic in 2019 celebrated her centennial which is where the idea of the festival actually emerged and the pandemic kind of put things on the back burner um having done that now i'm focusing all my energy in making this festival happen October 15, 2022. And that is the week of the National Heritage Week. And because of who Miss Lou is, our queen mother and cultural icon, 
I think that's the best time for it to happen. So that has been occupying my time, just getting the program together, getting a committee together, trying to get people to fund the festival. <laughs> is, is that difficult? Is oh that a difficult God, task? I did not imagine that it would be so difficult because I thought it would be uh, a breeze. I really did think it was going to be a breeze, even though I knew a lot of money had been assigned to the 60th independence celebration. I thought I would still, people would be still be forthcoming and would dig deep to fund this festival right. because of, it not only is it our 60th, but because Miss Lou, Louise Bennett, is also being slated to be put up as a national hero. It has been exceedingly hard. I have cut back and cut back. I have not even raised one eighth of what I need to have make this festival happen. But I am determined that if it is me alone, and it is not because I now have a wonderful team of people working with me and who are also committed, it is not going to be on the scale that we had hoped it was going to be on, but it's going to happen. And so for that, I'm grateful. And if anyone is listening, I need support, financial support or in-kind support in terms of things that we need. It has been a real challenge, but I'm forging ahead. You know, as you drum up support for this festival to, to honor Louise Bennett, how do you think it will impact the possibility of her being declared a national hero? Well, I hope that it will. You know, I wrote a piece that was published in the Observer um, last week because it seems to me the question is now, should she be a hero and not Bob Morley? And that mm. to me is a very silly question. Both have contributed tremendously in different ways to Jamaica. And it's not like we're overpacked with heroes. We can certainly include both of them. But I certainly hope because I love Bob Marley and I love what his music has done. But I think without Miss Lou, and this might be presumptuous, I think Miss Lou provided the platform and the way for artists like Bob Marley and Muta Baruka to take our language and really send it out into the world. So yes, my goal in this inaugural festival, one is to make it institutionalized and that it will become something that the government supports strongly and so it can expand. And two, that it will be made clear that Miss Lou and all the many areas of the culture that she um, occupied, that she should be one of our national heroes. I think that's a, a, a well-deserving position for her to occupy. And I'm thinking about the space. It's happening in Gordontown, um, which is where which was a home for her, which was a, a, a important place in Miss Lou's heart and for the community. What impact, can you talk about the impact that Miss Lou has had in the Gordontown area? People still love her and, um, you know, wish that her house, we're hoping that we'll be able to establish a museum in the Gordontown community. And she has had profound impact on the community. I think she really helped to put Gordontown on the map and again, make the, average person in Gordontown feel proud to be a Jamaican, which is why when people said, why have it in Gordontown? Because transportation and all this stuff. I said, this is where Miss Lou lived. Gordontown influenced and nurtured Miss Lou as a writer, as a creative being. And in fact, you know, Gordontown, if we think about it and all the people who live and have come out of Gordontown, including the late um, Barbara Gluden, 
then you, we have to begin to look at that space and what space right. means and how space nurtures creativity. So I couldn't think of a more apt and ideal place to have that than in Gordontown, particularly in the square where her statue has been installed and which has been renamed the Louise Bennett Coverley. Absolutely. And it's a very beautiful space to be in. It's so lush, it's so green, and it really does feel like a fertile ground to create. Absolutely. And there are so many wonderful rivers. You know, one of the things that the Gordon Town Association, who's working with me on this festival, they want to begin to do hike trails and, you know, things with the river and to not only look at the coffee, which is grown there, but also other things that might be grown there that people, and we're hoping that we will have a farmer's market at the festival. So oh, beautiful. You know, yeah, yeah. And a children's, a children's zone. You know, so we're, we're trying to make it as inclusive and family oriented as possible. Okay, so I think that there is an email address. Is it Louise Bennett Coverly Festival at Gmail? Yes, it is. And so I encourage people to contact us there, to offer their support, to volunteer, you know, to give us all the support and ideas um, and community that we need. I think that's a, a noble plan, and I really do hope that there is much support. Um, you never stop working. You are always creating yourself. Thank you so much, Opal, for finding some time to speak with me for posterity. Thank you so much, and thank you for doing this program and for being a voice of change with you know, your work at the university, the journal that you um, co-edit, uh, and all of the things that you're doing also um, as an example, not just for students, but for your three lovely daughters. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. So from one woman, one mother, one artist to another, I thank you. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Take care. Peace.